For being here, we haven't really talked a whole lot about the uh, the special master because there really hasn't been much of a development to talk about. We talked about this when the special master was named. I think that was a step. They are now starting to have their first public hearings. The special master wants documents, and there is some pushback. The special master is telling the Trump team, "You cannot have your cake and eat it too." The judges signed to review this case. Um, wanted certain documents that the uh, from the president. The Trump's attorneys rebuffed the request from the judge in one of the Trump candidates chosen to serve as the special master in this case. Um, in a Monday filing, uh, they sought more details about the former president's claims around declassification. So I want you to hear a little bit of this. This is Pierre Thomas from ABC ta- just quoting what the judge actually said. His first face-to-face meeting with Trump's attorneys and DOJ lawyers, former chief federal judge Raymond Deary asking for clarity. If the government gives me evidence these are classified documents and you don't advance declassification claims, which I understand is your prerogative, then as far as I I'm concerned. That's the end of it. You can't have your cake and eat it. And so that that is a sign saying we need you wanted this. And I don't blame him. I wanted this as well. A special master, an individual, an independent set of eyes that is going to look at what the ins and outs of this and tell the American people where there is merit and where there is not. And I think that's exactly what should be done. But now the special master is saying you can't have it both ways. You know, you're going to have to produce some of this declassification documentation and we'll see how it all plays out. And I don't know. Again, I am I am reserving judgment for very good reason. I am not jumping to conclusions. We've done that far too much. And it is a let's be honest. President Trump is a polarizing individual. You there. It's so funny because we've had people like that in politics on both sides of this. Uh, let's go. Let's go with Jimmy Carter. You know, Jimmy Carter. People don't have a big opinion on Jimmy Carter now. It's because he was president in the 1970s. But Jimmy Carter is a good man by most by most people's account. Jimmy Carter is a philanthropist and a very good man. There are questions, and a lot of people think he was not a good president. But when people talk about Jimmy Carter, they don't get animated. You don't have this animated conversation about Jimmy Carter. Nobody says to Jimmy Carter, and they go, eh. Yeah, that's a reaction that does not happen with people in politics like Donald Trump. Same thing with Nancy Pelosi on the other side of the aisle, Hillary Clinton on the other side of the aisle. There aren't many people that don't have strong opinions about them. That doesn't mean they've done anything wrong, but it doesn't mean they haven't. Just because you agree with someone, just because you like someone, doesn't mean that they are immune to doing the wrong things. On the other side of that coin, if you want to jump to the conclusion, I still get messages from people when I talk about this, and I'm not condemning the former president, that how can you defend, and how could anybody say what I'm saying right now is a defense? I'm not defending anyone. What I'm not doing is jumping to a passionate, emotional conclusion when I don't have all the information. But I will tell you, I think this is a very important thing that's happening. It's important for the American people to know the answers to this. So this is more. This is more of what the special master said. Now, this is not the judge speaking. It's Pierre Thomas from ABC. The special master noting the obvious, that some of the documents have classified markings, a number labeled secret and top secret. If they are on their face classified without any evidence to the contrary, how is it on the court to conclude anything but? 
Trump has publicly stated that he declassified the documents. But so far, neither the former president nor his attorneys have claimed the documents were declassified in any formal court proceedings. So that's where the, the rub is, that anything that the president had, he had declassified and they had made that order back at the White House, which the president has the prerogative to do. And the American people... I believe in the end are going to judge this in a court of public opinion. I don't think it's going to be in a courtroom. I don't know that the president's going to be indicted or, or convicted of anything, the former president. I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that the American people aren't going to view this as him doing something wrong. And I, I'm the making the uh, I'm equating this to Hillary Clinton and the documents she had with the server and everything else. She was not charged with crimes. The FBI director listed a number of criminal activities that he believed happened, but they didn't recommend charges because there wasn't a likelihood of a conviction, so she was never charged with a crime. But the American people largely believe she mishandled top-secret documents. So there's two different things going on here. A courtroom and the possibility of an indictment and of conviction, and the court of public opinion. And we, I don't know which direction or any direction this is going to go, but the special master is saying in this case, we've seen pictures of documents that are labeled top secret, secret and top secret. And unless you prove to us otherwise that they were declassified, how are we supposed to come to any other conclusion than those are top secret documents? That doesn't sound like an unreasonable thing for a judge to say. And so here's Trump's attorneys, now Pierre Thomas, talking about Trump's attorneys on these classified documents. Trump's attorneys have said they do not want to give details on whether or how Trump might have declassified documents just yet because it might be part of their defense should he be indicted. Okay, so I don't I don't know any of that to be true, and neither do you. Um, but I I agreed when when the former president and his team said we need a special master, and they gave a list of people that they thought were acceptable special masters, and this person was one of them. You cannot claim bias, and I, I'm not saying that they are yet, but you cannot claim if you are a Trump supporter, you, you can't claim bias here because this was one of the names put forward by the Trump team. And the significance of this for anybody, and I'm, it's like I'm talking to two different rooms of people. Um, for the people that hate Donald Trump, they believe that this is solid proof that this guy needs to go away, that this guy needs to be arrested, that this guy needs to be put in prison. And for the people that are Trump supporters, this is just a continuation of the witch hunt and nothing has been done wrong. So I want to talk to those two groups of people, starting with Trump supporters. If you were like me. When Hillary Clinton was accused of doing what she did and then she destroyed the server that had those emails on it, she wiped that server clean. She had somebody do it. She paid thousands of dollars to have somebody wipe that server clean. How upset were you? I was upset. I thought it was destroying evidence. Well, you've got to look at the rest of the country when they see this and Trump's attorneys are saying we don't want to comment on this yet. It might be part of our defense and we don't want to give up this information. They haven't destroyed the information, but they're saying they don't want to comply now with parts of what this special master is asking for. So the opposite side of this is looking at this as proof like we looked at it as proof that Hillary did something wrong when she wiped a server clean. And to the other side of the aisle, for those of you that are standing tall saying Hillary Clinton was never convicted of anything and this was all a witch hunt to get her knocked out of the election cycle, I'm going to give you the Trump supporters. And I'm going to say you sound just like they sound. As Americans, we've got to drop the political um, anger all the time. 
you don't like somebody, therefore they need to be convicted and they need to be arrested and they need to be hung and they need this treason. And this goes on both sides of the aisle. This is why a special master is necessary. Ask reasonable questions, but then wait for the conclusion. As soon as something goes your way in the court of public opinion, that's proof that everything was right the first time. And then when it swings back the other way, then it's proof that you were wrong the whole time. And I'm just in a wait and see mode. But I think this is a significant step. I think that these questions are valid questions that need to be answered. And let's just wait and see how they're answered. What we're going to do in a moment is uh, we're going to talk about college debt forgiveness. What do Arizona's voters think about college debt forgiveness? And the White House has put out numbers on what states and how much they are getting in college debt forgiveness. It's coming up in a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Stevie Nicks is headed to Auction Pavilion on October 6th with Vanessa Carlton. Tickets are on sale, but if you'd like to win a pair, you get a chance to do that by going to the contest page at KTAR.com. You can do it now. Um, Arizona voters and what they think about college debt forgiveness. A new poll released um, said the overall response leans positive. 50% of respondents approving of the plan, 46 disapproving, and 4% having no opinion. This is OH Predictive Insights, Mike Noble's group. The favorable tilt is even larger with the key block of independent voters who approve the plan 52 to 42 with a margin 6% having no opinion. Um, the poll of likely voters was conducted September 6th through 9th and had a margin of error plus or minus 3.83%. So uh, 80% of Democrats approve while 71% of Republicans disapprove. The dynamic is also seen by age groups. Younger voters, 64% approve. Those under 55 approve. And 64% age 55 and up disapprove. Well, of course you do. I mean, it's just that makes sense. The White House put out a fact sheet about which and how much each state is going to get. And here's my disagreement with this um, to a huge degree. And by the way, we have reached out and we are working on it. Dr. Crow at ASU is traveling. And so when Dr. Crow is back in town, we've invited him to come on the show to talk about tuition increases. And I would love to hear the story because there is no doubt that they have transformed that university in the last 20 years, that it's the most innovative. They have changed from a reputation of being nothing but a party school to having an engineering program that is really a program that is envied around the country in a lot of ways and not to mention their business management school and the Cronkite school where we have so many good people that work here. So they have transformed that university. But that doesn't mean that people are satisfied the tuition is as low as it should be. Um, I've used this example before in talking with people, and I find it ironic. The president of the United States, members of the administration, and people that believe like that administration believes politically have been screaming at private industry to lower their prices. They actually called them un-American. There is that guy Fetterman that is running for the Senate in Pennsylvania that actually says he wants to bring in CEOs of major food manufacturers and oil companies. He wants to arrest them and throw them in prison for profiteering because they're making obscene profits at a time when the American people are hurting. So they go after and they demonize private industry because they won't push down, lower their profits and lower their prices. At the same time, this administration isn't screaming at academia that state universities should be lowering the rate of their tuition for the students that live in their states. 
No one is screaming that. So what they're doing is they are charging, you know, they're, they're take, letting these kids take out loans and then they're forgiving the loans. Where's the demand to lower tuition and costs? That's my problem with this. If you, how do you not understand and see the hypocrisy in that? Not to mention that the education level in America is not what it used to be. And I'm not talking about higher education. I'm talking about coming out of high school. Our children are not educated. They cannot read and write. So um, this is a big issue. I have a big problem with student loan forgiveness because these are people that are burdened with loans and they're trying to make a living. And again, SBA loans. I would. I, I'm talking to a bunch of small businesses this week and next week. I'm, I've got a bunch of speaking engagements with people in the business community. I cannot wait to get in front of them and have this conversation. And I mean this sincerely. Small businesses are the lifeblood of who we are. And I will tell you why I loved the trades so much, the contracting world. Generally speaking, it isn't an end-all, be-all. It's not 100%. But generally speaking, when you look around town at some of the biggest um, contractors here in town, those companies were generally started by people in the industry that worked their way up into management and then went from management for a company to starting out on their own small and growing a business because of their business acumen, their industry connections, their work ethic, and their skill set. It isn't somebody – and it does happen where businesses are purchased. It, those things do happen. But for the most part, when you look at this industry, what I love about this industry – is for electricians like myself, I started out in 1985 as an 18-year-old helper. I wasn't even an apprentice. You're not even an apprentice until you know terminology. I was basically a strong back and a weak mind. Climbing addicts, dig ditches, go get me this, go get me that. And that's how you learn the names of tools, and that's how you learn the names of parts when they send you to go get things at the trailer so that the skilled labor can continue to make money. I went from 1985 until 1991 in a span of six years I became the manager of a small company. I was a service electrician. I was very good at what I did, and I worked hard, and I became management. Then I was taught how to bid work and collect money and manage hours on a job and money on a job. I came to Florida in 1995, and from 1995 until about 2000. One, I worked for companies here, and then I went to work on my own. I had a partner first, then I went on my own in the business. I literally, in the industry, in 20 years, went from being a helper to a business owner. It's what I love about those industries. So you tell me now that you're going to go look these people in the face, people that have mortgaged their homes, have foregone buying a vacation home or a new vehicle, have brought brown bag lunch and breakfast to work, that have slaved over this business and treated it like like a child to watch it grow. Then they've borrowed money. They've gone to the Small Business Administration. They've taken out an SBA loan. To make that business grow, they've hired people, they've implemented, uh, in many cases, they've implemented great uh, programs for businesses like insurance and benefit programs and things of that nature to make it better for their employees, 401ks. They've turned them into a legitimate thriving business, but they've borrowed money to do it. You're going to forgive their loans? This is – I'm insulted by this. I didn't never take out a small business administration loan, but I'm insulted by this. And I wish there were more people out there articulating why this is wrong. It's not always Republican good, Democrat bad. Sometimes policy good, policy bad. This is bad policy. It's an insulting policy. In a moment, 
Um, Phoenix police and school districts, what are they doing about school threats? We're going to talk about that specifically in just one moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, see, that's why you have to download the KTAR News app. Breaking news out now, Robert Sarver, the owner or managing partner, I should say, of the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury, is in the process of selling the team. He is moving in that direction. We're going to get the statement. We'll be talking about it. I'm sure it'll be a big story all day. When news breaks, if you download that app, you get news right on your device. If it's happening on the air, you can hear it from your device, or you can be linked to the story at KTAR.com. But download the KTAR News app in just a few moments, and we're going to take this up. We're going to talk about what's going on here with Robert Sarver and what this could mean and who potentially this could affect as far as who might be someone in in a position or group of people in a position to buy out uh, Mr. Sarver. The Phoenix Police Department, and I, I've had this conversation so many times with people because it is something um, uh, uh, that is worrisome to me. Well, Phoenix Police Department and school districts, what are they doing about recent school threats? Um, there's this, this is an Arizona Republic story. And teachers, or I'm sorry, parents are talking about when schools have been locked down. Uh, question is, has the number of threats at Phoenix schools increased? From August 11th to September 6th, they recorded 53 threats directed at schools or school staff and been documented by detectives. Here is part of why I think this is a good thing is the documentation. Um, And I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, I don't deserve credit for a lot of what I'm about to tell you. I was told by someone who knows um, or by people that know. The Hooper, Stephen Linda Hooper, who spent between them over 50 years with the FBI. Uh, Steve's a professor up at Embry-Riddle on their School of Security and Intelligence. And uh, they have a company um, called Tripwire, and they developed this company for security threats based on their knowledge and what they've done with the FBI. And you know, as the FBI was changed over to an anti-terrorism organization, looking at domestic terrorism and following in, up on leads and analyzing and assessing threats and in the private sector seeing that necessity. So a couple of things they've taught me, um, and I'm going to do my best to explain them as well as they do, and I'm not going to do it, but the, first of all, it's having someone who is kind of the clearinghouse for the threat. Your job is to get all the threats. Every threat that comes into the school against an individual uh, in the student body or staff, it goes to a person, whether it's an online threat, it was an overheard threat, it was a, a right in someone's face kind of a threat, and you build kind of a dossier, and I know that sounds like an ominous thing, but I don't, it's not meant that way, but you are documenting. So you have a kid, let's call him Billy, and someone comes and says, there's been a threat on social media by this kid Billy against another kid, says he's going to kill him. Now, between kids, what does that rise to the level of? And then someone comes in and says to a teacher, hey, this guy Billy's been acting really weird. And now you start to see a little bit of a pattern. Is there a point where there has to be some kind of intervention? But there has to be someone whose job it is to gather those threats and keep track of them. So when I say I'm glad to hear this, it sounds as if now you've got documentation. This is how many threats we've had. They're taking this very, very seriously, which I think is necessary. That in the past, 
making threats were seen as kids being kids or until something very serious happened. And we've heard this before. I can't go and do anything or I can't intervene. We can't intervene when somebody just makes a threat until they actually do something. There's nothing we can do. Well, I'm not talking about dragging a kid out of a classroom and handcuffs. But what we are talking about is making sure we know who people who these people are and keeping an eye on, you know, and I'm not talking about a government oversight program. I'm talking about someone that works in the school to make sure. You know, we do it with other assessments. Good students, bad students, when you have someone that's falling behind, you know who those kids are, the ones that need extra help. This idea of threat assessment is an important cog in this wheel because how many times have we heard when it comes to school threats? How many times have we heard after it happens, oh, we knew exactly who it was going to be? We knew exactly who it was going to be. One of the school shooters recently, um, and I can't remember if it was uh, if it was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas or if it was Uvalde, because they unfortunately I get the names confused sometimes in some of the circumstances. So I don't want to give credit one place or blame in another. But one of them, their nickname at school was school shooter. When it happened, students were saying we knew who it was going to be. So if you're seeing if children, if kids are seeing that kind of a shift in behavior in someone, there should be somebody on campus that is assessing this before it gets to the level of a shooting. And so that's part of it. And hopefully districts across the country are starting to morph in that direction. There are many corporations. You have a big company where a lot of people work. Um, not everybody gets along in the workplace. And we, we know, we know an accuracy, and, and it should be this way, that when uh, what used to be jokes in the workplace aren't funny anymore. That sexual harassment or harassment of any kind is not tolerated in the workplace. And it's documented. And people are interviewed and people are sometimes sent to some kind of sensitivity training and other people, it rises to a level, it gets egregious and they get fired for that kind of behavior. Well, why wouldn't we do that with dangerous behavior? You know, there's not everybody in a workplace gets along. And when somebody starts to behave erratically or make over the top threats, there's got to be someone in that company that's in charge of documenting this. And at what point, what does your plan say? At what point do we call the police and we have some kind of intervention legally? It's just it's a very good question. And so we're going to obviously we're going to stay on this. It's not going to be a topic that we get off of. Because it's one that's so serious because it involves our children. Uh, coming up in a moment, we are going to talk about Robert Sarver and the big bombshell news that he is looking for buyers for his portion of the team. It's all coming up in a few moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, Suns fans, let's talk about this. Uh, We're going to throw, and I don't have a whole lot of names, but I was just talking about this off the air. Robert Sarver had put out a statement, has put out a statement. He is the managing partner of the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury. And in part, he says, as a man of faith, I believe in atonement and a path to forgiveness. I expected that the commissioner's one-year suspension would provide the time for me to focus, make amends, and remove my personal controversy from the teams that I and so many fans love. But in our current unforgiving climate, it has become painfully clear that is no longer possible. That whatever good I have done or could still do is outweighed by things I have said in the past. For those reasons, I'm beginning the process of seeking buyers for the Suns and Mercury. 
Um, I, I, it's funny. I've, I've had the privilege, and I do mean it's a privilege, the privilege of meeting many people in, in high places with, with sports teams in town. Um, and uh, so, But I've not ever met Mr. Sarver. I have no opinion other than what I hear and what I read, just like you. So I wish I had some insight, but I don't. I have none. Um, I have on a number of occasions talked with the president of the team, with with Jason Rowley, who I think is a phenomenal person, you know, uh, and the things he's done with Sons Charities and uh, over the years. There are a couple of things here that are working against uh, Mr. Sarver and it will always hang over the head of anybody that buys this franchise, just like the owners of the Diamondbacks. Uh, there is a name that is synonymous with Arizona sports, and it is Jerry Colangelo. And Mr. Colangelo is the one that built the Phoenix Suns from the ground up when there was no other sports franchise here. They were in the in the West with, with the Lakers and they became a great team and they almost won the championship a number of times and they've had some beloved superstars on that team. But Mr. Colangelo ran that team in a way that fans absolutely loved for decades. He started and built and brought a World Series championship here with the um, with the Diamondbacks. And uh, he is no longer in ownership. Now, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people out there clamoring that a Colangelo group would jump back in and buy this team. I can't see that happening. But, you know, that's how loved Mr. Colangelo is. Colangelo is. So it would have been tough. It's tough for anybody that owns that team after Jerry Colangelo because they're always going to be measured against Mr. Colangelo. Oh, it's just how it is. It's the nature of the game. He resurrected USA basketball. There's that uh, sports management school at, at Grand Canyon University that is named after Mr. Colangelo. So he is legendary in Arizona when it comes to sports teams. But when you make a statement that basically says you're not going to forgive me so I'm out, I, I don't know how that's going to resonate with people. I'll be really honest with you. Um, in our current unforgiving climate, it's become painfully clear that it's no longer possible that whatever good I have done or could still do, it was outweighed by things I have said in the past. Um, there may be a measure of truth to some of that in the minds of, of some people, but part of the path to forgiveness has to be, I'm just speaking from my own personal opinion, humility. That there has to be a level of humility that says um, if this is the punishment that people think I deserve, I may not agree with it, but I'm going to go along with the punishment. That I, what I want is uh, the best message I would have said, and maybe he says it in here, and I'm not going to read the entire statement on the air. It's a couple of pages long. Um, um, but he does say here, it's interesting, uh, I do not want to be a distraction to these two teams and the fine people who work so hard to bring the joy and excitement of basketball to fans around the world. I want what's best for these two organizations. That's what he should have said first. The players, the employees, the fans, the community, my fellow owners of the NBA and the WNBA. This is the best course of action for everyone. If he would have taken out a little bit of the kind of I feel sorry for myself part of this. I think that's the road to forgiveness. That's just my personal feeling. Um, there was an independent, thorough investigation that found out that there was a history of bad behavior toward women. There was a history of using language that is inappropriate um, and, and racial slurs that are inappropriate. And, and I'll tell you, we I, 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 for anybody out there that's listening, that's that's not white, I will tell you from probably the whitest guy in the building that, you know, there are those awkward conversations when somebody that you are friends with, somebody that you actually know, says something that is like, ooh, I wouldn't say that. 
You know, now I'm not talking about using the N word like like Sarver did. Um, that's an obvious one. But you understand that there is a little bit of when you're made uncomfortable by the language of somebody else and somebody says to you, man, you can't say that. Um, and then you continue to say it. And, and again, it was found that Mr. Sarver had absolutely no um, – was not being racist in the things he was saying, no racist intent, that he wasn't using that word as a derogatory term. He was repeating what other people said. Um, and I think of all the things there, it might be the one that is the most emotionally angering to some, but it may be the least important. It just showed him to be you know, out of touch. But the crass behavior and the things about women in the workplace, that's something that we've all been trying to end and watch uh, progressively end for a long time. That there's what used to be considered just the way it is to it was just a joke to it's not funny to it's unacceptable. And, and so I think there's a lot of that plays into it. But this thorough investigation found a history of this. Now, I don't see the timeline of when it ended, but it looks like it's coming to end. I would love to have the conversation with someone about who it's going to be, who they think it's going to be. There's some bill- there's a lot of billionaires in Arizona that could step up. We'll see. I'm wondering who it's going to be. Coming up just after 10 o'clock. How high are the rates going to go and how will it affect us in the economy? We will talk interest rates and we'll do it next.